This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Geraldine Heng, Percival Professor of Medieval and Romance Historiography and Culture at the University of Texas at Austin. We're talking about her book, The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages, which came out from Cambridge University Press in 2018. Uh, Jerry, welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you, Carl. Great to talk with you. The way that this book brings the medieval world into focus, I found so, so helpful. Let's dive right into our conversation. Can you talk a little bit about your background and what brought you to write The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages? Thank you. Thank you very much. It took 12 years to write this book. Yeah. It a lot of effort. So I'm glad you like it. I'm glad someone likes it. <laughs> um, I started working on race actually already in my first book, Empire of Magic, Medieval Romance and the Politics of Cultural Fantasy, which was about crusader cannibalism, crusader trauma, and the genesis of the King Arthur legend. Mm -hmm. Um, I had two chapters where I worked on race, chapters two and four, where I discussed Jews and Muslims and color, blackness, epidermal race. So it was a natural thing to transition from that to a full-blown book on race. Mm. But um, while I was working on race, the Medieval Academy of America, um, their editorial board, was surprisingly progressive you know, at the time, and they, they commissioned an anthology on medieval race from me. They asked me if I would edit something, and I did. And then they said, well, why don't we turn this into a short monograph instead? Write a short book on race. Well, as it turns out, it was impossible to write a short book on <laughs> modern race, right? I mean, I don't know why I was so naive as to think it was possible. Mm-hmm. So in the end, um, I found somewhat, I found resistance to the idea of conceptualizing uh, the Middle Ages, the European Middle Ages as racial time. People mm-hmm. wanted a kind of pre-racial era before the Renaissance, before modernity, even early modernity. Race study scholars were resistant, medievalists were resistant. So I tried out a series of talks over several years, arguing, explaining, suggesting, until you know there was uh, a possibility of an audience that could receive a book like this, which is one mm. reason why it took so long to write it. Besides the, besides the fact that I had to work on many different archives. Some were highly specialized archives, like... Um, Romani studies, you know, um, well-established, but not familiar to many audiences. Some were archives of, that were never really read, you know, um, in the ways that I wanted, wanted to read. But anyway, 
that's how the book began. And in the end, it turned into a large book of more than 500 pages. Mm-hmm. And it includes not just um, work on Muslims and Jews and epidermal race, color. These are subjects that medievalists have been working on for a little while. But also on um, Native Americans and on um, Mongols and on the Romani. One of the things that you address in the introduction, as you're describing some of this history that led to the publication of the book, is the challenges you got, some of the particular challenges you got about using uh, a race studies framework and charges of being presentist. Yes. Can you talk a little about how you discuss that in the book and how it kind of works in your own thinking? Yes. I mean, this, this is a problem because when people think about race, sometimes they still think in terms that were established in the earlier 20th century and in the 19th century. Earlier notions of race thought of race as somehow a biological construct, even mm. an erroneous biological construct, because the 18th century, which is the period of high modern racism, so to speak, was dominated by science. You know, I mean, people who do critical race studies are familiar with scientific racisms. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So it was thought that anything that was um, determined by something else other than science, by culture, for example, could not really be considered race, could not be called race. But from the later decades of the 20th century, critical race studies had become very sophisticated and people began to understand that culture too, um, besides biology, could predispose notions of race. Mm-hmm. I love Anne Stoller's work on Indonesia, on Dutch Indonesia, the East Indies, where to be considered European, um, to be raced as white, as European, required a number of factors, including modes of dress, customs, manners, behavior, not just you know biology or DNA. So I, I figured what I needed was a better understanding of what race might look like in earlier periods, mm. as well as you know, perhaps in the 21st century today. In the medieval period, the magisterial discourse deciding everything was religion, right? Um, and religion could predispose the understanding of how biology worked, as well as political theology, as well as culture, as well as all kinds of things. So finally, I decided upon a sort of a a working hypothesis um, of race. So race was one of the primary names we have, a really important name that we retain because of all the commitments that the name recognizes that's attached to a repeating tendency to demarcate and set off human beings through differences that are selectively essentialized as absolute and fundamental, so as to distribute positions and powers differentially to human groups. So race-making happens during historical occasions where strategic essentialisms are posited and assigned through a variety of ways and, and practices to construct a hierarchy of peoples for differential treatment. Mm. So in other words, race really wasn't so much a content, a substantive content, as a structural relationship for the management of human differences, right? Mm. So people could come into race and come out of race. Racialization occurs, and then sometimes people come out of race, and then they come back into race. I mean, I think this is useful not just for the medieval period, but even today. As you see, Muslims are being racialized. They can be Mm -hmm. 
from India, from Africa, from Pakistan, you know, from, they could be Native, they could be African Americans, you know, but they are basically read as a distinct group that is fundamentally and absolutely different. Jews are being racialized again, as you can see from the Pittsburgh synagogue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's a way of understanding racialization, not as a permanent fixture, but as a sorting mechanism. And once I had that, it became possible to name the kinds of atrocities and phenomena that occurred during the Middle Ages, the European Middle Ages, for what they were. I mean, sometimes acts and practices and institutions and laws and phenomena happen before there's a, there's a name for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is like race making before the vocabulary of race coalesced. Um, when you think of the kinds of genocides that occurred mm-hmm. um, during the uh, European Middle Ages, like the, uh, the slaughter, the mass slaughter of Jews during the ascension and coronation of Richard I, the Crusader King, or during the First Crusade and the Second Crusade, the, the genocides that occurred in the Rhineland. When you think of uh, Jews being forced to wear badges, the tagging and the herding of Jews, you know, the, the libels, the stories that were told about them, how they, they needed to sacrifice Christian children, mutilate and torture them to reenact the killing of Christ, or needing the blood of little boys because of their own blood loss, you know, to bake into matzo balls or, or whatever. Um, the, the belief that Jews had um, different anatomical features from Christians, that they had a special stench, a smell, that they had a special face, a certain kind of phenotype, um, mm-hmm. that they had horns and a tail, or that Jewish men bled uncontrollably, like, um, like menstruating women every month or like once a year during Holy Week. Um, and then the herding of them into towns where their, their activity, their lives, their, their livelihood could be monitored. And then being told, well, you cannot live anywhere else except in these towns where there are special registries for surveillance and for monitoring you. you know. um, and finally, through a series of laws, you know, their expulsion from England and then from the countries of Western Europe, Latin Christendom one by one from 1290 all the way through to the last, uh, the last expulsions, which I think were Portugal and Lithuania. I'm not sure. Spain had one of the late expulsions, and everyone's impressed by Spain and know about Spain because, because of the scale. But in fact, England was the first, in mm-hmm. ma- and England was the worst in many ways. England was the first with the Jewish badge in right. Uh, right. 1215. Um, the canons of the Fourth Lateran Council decided that Jews and Muslims needed to be marked off by a difference of dress so as to be able to tell them apart from the Christian population. All this despite the fact that they had a special smell and a special face that you should be able to tell them from Christians, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, by 1218, uh, Jews in England were forced to wear a badge. And then, you know, legislature in England in 1222, 1253, 1275, all sort of fixated on this badge. What size it had to be, who had to wear it, even children from the age of seven onwards. How large, where on the chest to put it, and so on. So all these, these acts, these laws, these institutions, you know, I mean, to say that these are just, you know, forms of discrimination just doesn't cut it, you know? If they were to happen today, we would say that these are forms of racialized behavior. Mm-hmm. These are 
semi-apartheid or apartheid practices, right? Mm. So really, in many ways, we needed the the critical apparatus, the tools and resources made available by critical race studies to really understand the kinds of phenomena um, that happened during the European Middle Ages. I mean, the Romani were enslaved in uh, southeastern Europe and treated like slaves all the way until, what, the 19th century? Um, Just to say, well, that they were discriminated against somehow seemed quite inadequate. Mm-hmm. Um, medievalists had been working on otherness and on difference for quite some time, but these are categories with a degree of generality. And I think what we needed was the trenchancy and the specificity that uh, the vocabulary and the tools of critical race studies gave us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's why I, I made an argument for the racial and for the processes of racialization based on the medieval archive. Not based upon the fact that I wanted to import these, import the, these words backward and impose them on the past. You know, it was a matter of listening to the archive, listening to what had not been heard or heard differently, you know, uh, mm-hmm. inadequately heard perhaps. It was, a ma- it was a matter of reading sometimes the unread archive of the European Middle Ages or the inadequately read archive or, or you know, archives that only highly specialized uh, scholars knew about, but that others didn't. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the work is presentist or anachronistic. Um, I work very hard and very carefully um, and very slowly, as you can tell, since it took me 12 years to write this book. <laughs> um, I work very carefully to make sure that I honor the past as the past and that I'm as faithful to um, my objects of study as possible. Can you talk a little bit more about the way you treat the administration of race, especially with the case of, of Jews in England in the 13th century? You've talked about some of the some of the libels, some of the kind of racism from below. But one of the things you do really powerfully in that chapter is discuss, you know, what some thinkers talk about as biopolitics. But sometimes bio, biopolitics is seen as a modern phenomenon. Where here you're talking about the administration of race with, and you've mentioned some of it, um, segregation and surveillance and administrative positions like the exchequer of the Jewry. Can you talk a little bit more about how you, you address those details of the administration of race from above um, that worked in tandem and together with the libels and the, and the, the cultural racism that you, that you already mentioned? Yes. In fact, I have a short book called England and the Jews, How mm. Religion and Violence Created the First Racial State in the West. I have an argument that actually um, 13th century England created a racial state. And England has been said to be archetypical of the rest of Europe. You know, Spain is not typical of the rest of Europe. Spain is very unusual and very, very different. Polyglot cultures, multiple religions, um, cons- you know, his- long history of uh, invasions by different groups. Um, Robert Stacey, the historian, the foremost historian, I think, of Jews in England, in medieval England, um, has called England archetypical of the rest of Europe. It's only different by virtue of the sheer inventiveness and the earliness and the intensity, the sheer intensity of how the English state supervise and manage and control its Jewish populations. Um, on the one hand, you know, um, there were uh, state instruments like the Exchequer of the Jews created um, 
to manage Jewish assets, to know how much individual Jews had so that they could be taxed in special taxes called talages uh, by the king, by the crown, by the state, um, to monitor their livelihoods. To It decided that they needed licenses to establish a residence or to change residences. Um, a special institution called the Domus Conversorum, the house or home of converts, was created for Jews uh, who had converted to Christianity. And, you know, conversionist uh, sermons were preached at Jews to get them to convert to Christianity. The problem is, you know, once you converted to Christianity, you had to give all your, everything you owned to the state because all those, all those earnings, all your assets were gained by usury, you know, which is illegitimate and, and sinful and a crime. Um, so you became poor. Then you needed to be housed by the state. Um, so the Domus Conversorum was created for Jews who were once Jews but had turned into Christians, and it was funded by taxes imposed upon people who were still Jews. It was, it was incredible. In that the level of state, state management and control and supervision of the lives of Jews in England was extraordinary. I mean, this, this, this was complemented on the ground by informal mechanisms, mm-hmm. mechanisms like uh, stories and rumors and libels and lies told about them. Um, it was England that started what, what scholars call the ritual murder libel yeah. in 1144 in Norwich, when they claimed uh, a boy was ritually murdered by Jews. Uh, crucified after torture, after mutilation. Um, and later, there was the blood libel, which says that, well, they mutilated and killed Christian children because they needed their blood for ritual sacrifices and for ritual bizarre and arcane esoteric rituals. And also because, you know, because they bled con- um, congenitally, right? So they, they needed the blood to replace their own blood loss. And then there was host desecration libel that uh, Jews needed to torment and torture the consecrated host, which would often bleed and or turn into a vision of a little child, you know, to prove the, uh, the authenticity of a real presence and of transubstantiation of the host. You know, so this that's a fantastic story because on the one hand, it vilifies Jews. On the other hand, it also um, vindicates and uh, exalts the absolute authenticity of a Christian sacrament, communion, right? Mm. Mm. So a lot of these things focus upon the bodily and the sensory. In one sense, Jews were hypervisible. There are cartoons and manuscripts of the hypervisible Jewish face, beetling brows and big foreheads and gigantic noses. On the other hand, they were not sufficiently visible. So you couldn't always tell them apart from Christians. So they had to wear a badge so you could tell from a glance who was a Christian, who was a Jew. So you had a combination of Lives lived on the ground and stories told about these people. Lies and stories, you know, to create mm-hmm. communities of consent and violence toward Jews. On the other hand, you had the supervisory mechanisms of the state and the collusion of uh, theology. Um, theologians who uh, represented Jews basically as the killers of Christ, Jews rather than Romans as the killers of Christ. And, you know, uh, the, the sharing of blood for the killing of Christ over the generations, across many generations. So a lot of it was highly sensory. You know, Jews were too loud. They were caterwauling in synagogues. They were too present. They, yeah, so there were laws um, 
forbidding uh, Jews eating with Christians or walking in the streets publicly during Holy Week or lingering in the homes of Christian friends. They could not hold offices, especially offices um, that had domination of some kind, governance of some kind over fellow Christians. You know, they could not rebuild their synagogues um, if the synagogues uh, needed repair, all kinds of things. Until finally, after everything, they were expelled from England during a, uh, an incredible parliamentary session where the king, Edward I, got the largest tax he ever got um, in return for expelling the Jews. So Bob Stacey has a wonderful article about this that suggests both the economic efficiency of the expulsion as well as the continued um, manipulation of religious hatred for the expulsion. So I I think um, a lot of the the coordination of um, persecution of the English jury was not, it was overarching, but it was not um, necessarily thought through in advance. A lot of these actions sort of were adaptations and innovations that occurred in the mm. course of you know, um, controlling Jews. They simply, the apparatus simply grew and grew and grew, got more intricate, got more complex. And I think the Foucauldian notion of the biopolitical works well uh, in this case because you see everything. You see a sifting out of Jews in geographic and urban space. You see uh, a marking out of, um, of a, a population for, for treatment. The statute of jury, the statute of 1275, is really an extraordinary document. I think this is actually a segregation order because there's one mm-hmm. particular clause that says no Christian and Jews should go to sleep, should lie down and wake up in the same place. They should not, they should not, um, they should not occupy the same domestic and physical urban spaces. Um, this is not just a, a a reiteration of the notion that Jews and Christians cannot be in the same house or or socialize because uh, other clauses say that they are allowed to carry out business together for the purposes of a livelihood, Um, but they really should not be allowed to live in the same sort of um, area, right? So, I mean, what is this if this is not a segregation order, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they cannot live in the same neighborhoods anymore. They cannot live in the same urban spaces anymore. And it amounts to what you describe in the book as race formation around Jews as figures of absolute difference. Yes, they are the template by which other races are measured and calculated across the European Middle Ages. I mean, you see in documents over and over again, oh, the Greeks were worse than the Jews. So-and-so was better than a Jew. Um, or Christians who take interest for credit, for loans, are just like Jews, you know. And of course, they were the infidel within Christendom, right? Unlike mm. Muslims who were the international enemy and whom you could fight in the battlefield, in the killing fields of holy war, uh, Jews were at home in every country of Europe. They were in the cities and they were in the towns. They were the enemy, the infidel at home. So it's not surprising that whenever a crusade was summoned and people prepared to go out and kill the infidel out there, they would begin by killing the infidel at home first, mm-hmm. as well as you know taxing the infidel at home to finance the wars against the external infidel. One of the things I, I said in my first book, Empire of Magic, was that um, the Domus Conversorum, 
the house for the uh, for Jews who had converted to Christianity later became the site of the uh, uh, Rolls House and then the public record office where the business of England was kept. So, I mean, it was a an almost allegorical, almost poetic way of saying that England, the, the business of England, what became the record-keeping uh, facility, the site of England, it was actually in the place, on the place, sited in the place where once Jews lived. Mm. I think the, the history of England as a community, especially in the medieval period, is based upon the, the positing of what was Christian and English um, and therefore not Jews, not Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, Jews were fundamental to the understanding of who could be English, even though there were numerous divides in England, class divides, regional divides, divides of language, of dialect, you know. But the one thing that the English shared in common was that they were Christians. They were not Jews. So, you know, the, the internal enemy served a fundamental purpose for for unifying um, a population across many, many, many divisions, internal divisions. It's important, I think, in the foundational history of a country to understand how minority groups like this, like Jews, are manipulated to create the sense of a national majority. Mm-hmm. And you can see this happening again today as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Turkey and the Kurdish population, right? I mean, the Kurds are treated in a kind of new apartheid by, uh, by the Turkish president and his minions. Um, I have colleagues who argue that you see some of this happening in the US as well, toward immigrants, toward Muslims, toward Jews. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Once you have really explored that example in detail, that early case, you move in the next chapter of the book, chapter three, to talking about crusading ideology and and war and mercantile capitalism in a number of developments of race-making. You, yes. start, you start with a, a kind of a history of the term Saracen. Can you talk about what you do with that and how it sets you up to discuss uh, race-making in the Crusades? Yes. You know, it's anyone who reads um, medieval literature in which Muslims feature is struck by how the term Saracens keeps appearing again and again to describe those who are Muslim. It is a religious naming, you know, I mean, where Muslims and Christians live closer together, like in the southern Mediterranean, for instance, um, you get a greater variety of names for for Muslims. Mm. Um, But all over Western Europe, you see the term Saraceni, Saracens, appearing appearing again and again. This is a fabricated term. It basically comes from a story. I mean, this is the earliest that I can tell that the story appears um, by St. Jerome, who said of Arabs, that they call themselves Saracens, Saraceni, to disguise the fact that they are descended from Hagar, the concubine and the slave, rather than from Sarah, the legitimate wife, the authentic wife of Abraham, because they are ashamed of being descended from the slave. So 
the the term is attributed in pre-Islamic times to Arabs. But then in the 7th century, when Islam began to spread, and very, very quickly it spread too, um, what happened was Genesis 16.12 was summoned and invoked. You know, um, 16.12 suggests that uh, a people living in the desert raised their hands against everyone and had the hands of everyone raised against them. And they lived at odds with their brother in the desert. Genesis 16.10 prophesied that the descendants of Ishmael would be an uncountable multitude. Then not only Arabs and Islamic Arabs seem to be uh, described by the term Saracens, but also Muslims. And the term was expanded. Isidore of Seville in the 7th century retells the same fable about um, uh, the descendants of Hagar, pretending mm-hmm. that they were the descendants of Sarah. So this, you have this really ingenious way to describe the international enemy, right? You tell a lie about them that describes them as liars in the fact, in the very act of lying about them. It, it's, it's really quite brilliant, this particular invention. The enemy is a liar and ashamed of his origin. And here is the story that that authenticates this explanation, and the story is a lie. So it's downhill all the way from there on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, During the Crusades, you know, in war, as you know, it's uh, race making tends to be particularly vigorous in the killing fields of war. Right, Mm. the demonization of the enemy is as a particular instrumentality of war. It's a particular instrument of war, and race race lends special instrumentalities to war. Uh, St. Bernard, Bernard de Clairvaux, you know, who co-wrote the rule of the Templars, the order of the temple, the monastic military knights um, who safeguarded the kingdom of Jerusalem. He invented the idea that um, killing a Saracen wasn't really like killing a person. It really was like killing an abstraction. So it wasn't a homicide. It was a malicide. It was the killing of incarnated evil evil that had taken a particular form. I mean, that, 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 makes, that makes everything so much easier. You're killing an abstraction. And of course, you know, um, the multiple multifarious armies of crusaders in the field were tremendously diverse, but united by the fact that they were all, they were all Christians. So this, in this particular chapter, I talk about various things. I talk about how the crusades coalesced a certain kind of race-making, about how the assassins coalesced a certain kind of race-making, how the term assassin first came about, and how this breakaway group of so-called heretics, you know, from the perspective of Sunni Islam, somehow became seen as representative of all Muslims, um, sort of the first terrorists, you know, the first Muslim terrorists to afflict uh, the rest of the world, the Latin West. And then, of course, I I talk about um, the kinds of, Ironies um, that result from from race making of uh, in in this in this time period. There is a there is a romance that I write about in Empire of Magic called The King of Tars. It tells a story in which a white skinned princess, Christian princess, is sort of given as a prize by her father, the King of Tars, to a black, loathly, ugly Saracen Muslim king of Babylon. Babylon is also really a synonym for Cairo in medieval European texts. Mm. And then she effects a transformation 
she converts him from Islam to Christianity. And then he goes on a kind of crusading rampage against his fellow Muslims unless they convert. So this is incredibly fascinating. Um, and I wanted to know how much historical weight might be behind these kinds of stories, these cultural fictions that get created. So I started looking into Christian princesses uh, or Christian, white-skinned Christian women who had been married to Muslim emirs or kings. Mm. Um, and of course, uh, in the history of Spain, history of Iberia, you get this fascinating situation in which all the caliphs of Cordoba were blonde-haired, blue-eyed men, except for one, uh, Abdurrahman III, who was red-haired and who dyed his hair to look more Arab, who, because they were the sons of, you know, Caucasian fair-skinned women, right? Uh, women who rose to great prominence because of uh, their sons who became caliphs. But no conversion occurred. No conversion of any kind occurred. You know, Islam did not require conversion by these women. These women did not succeed in turning uh, their sons or their husbands into crusading Christian kings. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in Egypt itself, uh, the opposite happened. The history of 13th century Egypt is unique for the rise of and the apogee of a Mamluk dynasty of slaves who came from everywhere, who came from outside Islamdom, who came from outside Dar al-Islam. Mm. Mamluks are, are owned slaves. Um, they had been used as early as the Abbasids and the Umayyads. But really, the apogee came from the 13th century to maybe the sick part of the 16th until they were defeated by the Ottomans. Um, they're a slave dynasty because they're made up of troops recruited as boys from everywhere else, but not from, from Islamdom itself. Mm -hmm. uh, Islam for forbids enslaving fellow Muslims. So these boys, from the ages of 10, 14 maybe, to 14, were mostly recruited from the Caucasus and from around the Black Sea. There are two dynasties of them, the Bahri and then the Burji. The Bahri dynasty was made up mostly of Turkic peoples. And then the, uh, the Burji dynasty was made up of Circassians, white folks from the Caucasus, Caucasian peoples. Mm -hmm. um, these Caucasian peoples were originally Christian, mostly Christian. And then they became Islamized when they were brought to Egypt and trained to become soldiers. This, this was like a kind of pre-modern West Point, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they lived together. These boys had no families. So their military cohort became their family. Their patron, the man who bought them, became their father figure, right? They became a formidable military force. And they were the primary military force of, the, um, of Egypt and Syria and the Middle East until the Ottomans began, uh, began their ascendancy. So from the, for a couple of hundred years, the mm -hmm. Mamluks were the ones who completed the counter-crusade begun by people like Zengi and Nur al-Din and Saladin, Salahadin. Um, Salahadin reconquered Jerusalem for Islam, but it was Baibas, a Mamluk, who conquered the last crusader colony in the Middle East, Akka, in uh, 1291. Um, and they did astonishing things, you know, they did architectural projects, building, the arts flourished. Um, the famous, the oldest manuscript we have of the Arabian Nights, the Thousand and One Nights, issues from this Mamluk period and issues from Mam Mamluk, uh, Egypt and Syria. Mm. So 
these boys were purchased and but from slaveholders who were primarily European and primarily Italian and primarily Genoese. Some historians like Andrew Ehrenkreutz believe that the Genoese were responsible for prolonging the necessity of holy war um, in the history of the Crusades because they furnished Egypt with the military elites and the Sultan for 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mamluk dynasty was strange and special in that no one could become a Sultan who had not previously been a Mamluk, an owned slave. You know, there, there's a tremendous irony in this, right? Because on the one hand, you have this fervor, the fervor and the intensity and the commitment to holy war in Latin Christendom. On the other hand, you have these merchants who were selling people to Islamdom to become their military force, their military elites, and their rulers, thus ensuring the necessity of having to continue holy war for hundreds of years, you know, and also ensuring the defeat of, of, Jeru- of Jerusalem, the Crusader East. Um, anyway, so, so in fact, history corrects literature in interesting ways. If there had been a real princess of Tars who had been married off to a sultan of Babylon, she wouldn't have found like a black, loathly sultan whom she could convert to Islam and turn into a kind of crusader king. What she would have found would have been a white, fair, Caucasian sultan who had once been Christian, but who had converted to Islam and who waged holy war successfully against Christians. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the ironies of history, you know, um, to see how religious ideology and fervor could be undercut by greed by mercantile greed, mm-hmm. by commerce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Commerce continued all through the ages of Holy War. And there are arguments by historians that, in fact, the Fourth Crusade was diverted to Constantinople away from Egypt because of commercial interests, the commercial interests of the Venetians who did not want their, their very profitable trade with um, uh, Al-Kamil's uh, Egypt uh, disrupted in any way. I want to hit chapter four because it's in chapter four that you make the argument that whiteness becomes normative in the 13th century. And I've read other race theorists and scholars in race studies who talk about the formation of whiteness uh, and place it in the modern period. But you do some really important work, I think, talking about the significance of whiteness and blackness in the 13th century and, and on from there. Can you talk about how you discovered in the archives and the work that you were doing the way that whiteness becomes normative in the Middle Ages, not in the modern period. Yes, this is, this is actually an oddity. Most of the work that had been done on race up to the point when I started writing had been done by medievalists working on blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, the thinking, the normative thinking is that, well, when you're black, you have a race, right? And when you're white, you're just invisible, you're just normal. But I thought that was sort of strange. It's like people saying, uh, I, Jerry Hank, have an accent, whereas people who have American accents don't have accents. I mean, from my point of view, everybody has an accent. You have mm-hmm. an American mm-hmm. accent, a Swedish accent, a British accent, a Filipino accent, an Indian accent, and so on. I mean, there's no accentless English. In the same fashion, I mean, I didn't think white people were not a race in the medieval period. And classicist friends like James D. had been pointing out that, um, you know, color... Blackness is not necessarily negative in the classical period. 
you know, at the beginning of the Iliad, for instance, the gods are feasting with the Ethiopians, and masculinity uh, was defined as um, a, a, a virility a virility by men who were dark, you know, I mean, Odysseus was dark, for instance. People mm. who were pale were either sickly or women or, you know, or, or ill, right? Whiteness was not a good thing. So then, you know, the question arises, um, when did whiteness become so normative and central to, to European identity, right? So the art historian Madeleine Cavaniss has a wonderful article where she shows how whiteness became uh, more normative rather than uh, rather than so, you know, a variety of skin colors and a variety of skin tones. She uses the uh, the archive of uh, Louis the Ninth uh, of France. This is the Crusader King after which uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and Saint Louis, Missouri, are named. Mm. Um, she looks at the art objects commissioned by his grandmother onward, you know, through the generations, and she finds that. Uh, the early art objects show figures depicted with real flesh tones, flesh tints, normal skin colors, and then gradually they get whiter and whiter and whiter until they're pure blazing white, white like the whites of your eyes, you know, white like a sheet of paper, not, not skin color. So then she formulates a, a conception that um, probably the middle of the 13th century is when the ascension of whiteness to supremacy as a definitional category for European identity occurs. Mm. Um, this seemed to make sense with me. So I basically investigated the documentary archive. I looked at texts um, to see whether or not this could have the same kind of traction in written work as well as in the, you know, the, the art that um, Madeleine Cavaniss was investigating. So, you know, and, and it's true. So I end, up dis- I end up discussing a variety of literary texts, including um, Wolfram von Eschenbach's uh, Parzival, which is an early, early half of the uh, 13th century, um, and which is intensely interested in color, not just in blackness. Scholars of Parzival have discussed blackness in it quite a lot, but mm-hmm. it's clearly also very interested in whiteness. It's interested in whiteness can mean what it can conceal, what it reveals, you know, um, the relationship between surface, epidermal surface, and moral interiors. It, it wants to know whether black can be considered beautiful. And I think the answer is yes, because it shows um, uh, how a queen of Zaza monk in Africa, a woman called Bella Kana, is so, um, is so attractive to a white Arthurian knight called Gamure that the man cannot sleep. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't think, he's twisting and turning. So anyway, I became, so I, I read the literary archive. Um, there's also a Middle Dutch romance called Morian in which a black knight from Africa comes to Arthurian Europe in search of his father and his patrimony. Mm. There, are, there are many, many other texts. What is true is there is an intense exploration in the first half of the 13th century about uh, what color means and what whiteness means. Um, this, this in particular is, um, is true also of um, how uh, a certain a saint, um, St. Morris, whose statue appears in uh, East Germany in the Cathedral of Magdeburg, gets suddenly transformed into a black African saint 
sub-Saharan African saint mm. with with a phenotype and features, you know, as well as the as well as the epidermal coloring in the 13th century. The thing about color that is so interesting in the 13th century is the is both the ascension of whiteness uh, as a category of identity for Europeans. And Kavanagh shows how eventually, you know, literally that whiteness becomes attached to saints and then turns invisible, becomes colorless glass. Mm. Mm. Um, as well as uh, the uh, accretion of negative meanings for blackness. Blackness becomes increasingly negative in its connotations, associated not only with sin, but also with the infernal and with the damned. But, you know, the European Middle Ages is a very complex time. It's not simple. It's not um, a time of naivety. It's a time of great complexity because the Black St. Morris, for example, shows that it is possible for a saint um, in the 13th century to suddenly turn into a Black African and be venerated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, despite black being the color of sin, the color of the devil, and so on, how might something like that be possible, right? This is something that has interested art critics quite a bit. Uh, whether blackness on a saint can seem different from blackness in general in other contexts. Later, of course, there's that unique phenomenon called the Black Madonnas. People are attached to the Black Madonnas, not just because they're Madonnas, but because also because they're Black. There's a great deal of controversy as to why they're Black and how they got their colour. Mm. But looking at the Black St. Morris, I wanted to see, to understand different things. I wanted to understand why a Black African saint might be promulgated in the heart of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany, um, either by uh, and commissioned either by an emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, or possibly by uh, the archbishop at the time, uh, Albrecht of Kaffenberg. Um, so Paul Kaplan has a theory that for uh, Frederick II, turning the statue of St. Morris, whose hagiography is a thousand years old by this time, who had never been seen as a black African before, turning mm. him black and African, is a way of saying that uh, Frederick, the emperor, emperor, had dominion over the far races of men on earth, including Africa. And for the archbishop, um, if he had commissioned the, the statue of a black African saint, Africa was, in other words, a place where that could also be evangelized. You know, that could be evangelized along with all the different races of the earth. So the thing is, it's it's really quite interesting that all this took place in the 13th century. The 13th century was a time of failed crusade, mm. one failed crusade after another. Yeah, um, And it would, therefore, it seemed like to turn a, a, a saint who had never been seen as anything um, like a black African before into an African at this time is a way to remember the past and to bring the past into the present. The Africa of the church fathers, the early church fathers, of ascetics in the desert to remind people that Africa, which was at this point controlled by the Mamluks of Egypt, was once Christian and could be Christian again. It was a way of making Africa mobile and portable to the heart of the Holy Roman Empire, to a church, the Cathedral Cathedral of Magdeburg in Germany, where you could actually revisit the African past, the sacred African past, 
of early Christianity, the hallowed past of the good years of the early salvational years of church history. And you could also visit his relics that were there at the same time, the relics of, of the saint. Mm. So then I thought, well, you know, if, if this is true for um, the church, if this is true for the emperor, what about the penitent, right? The, the average person who might make the pilgrimage to Magdeburg to stand before the saint and to pray. So what might that average penitent feel, you know, before a, a black African saint when, in fact, you were told that Africa, Ethiopia, blackness, these are the, these are the personifications of sin through, through color. And I thought, well, maybe blackness, when it's laid upon a holy figure, like a saint or the Virgin Mary, can act as a kind of homeopathy, where in other contexts it would be shunned and feared and vilified, right? Um, mm. Because a penitent stand before St. Morris, a black St. Morris, might think, well, he's black and he's an Ethiopian, but he is saved because he's a saint. And if he can be forgiven and embraced despite his color, then I too and my sins can be forgiven, right? And I can, I can, I can return to the, the body of, of Christ, to, to salvation and to the Christian community. So I think it, color, when laid upon holy figures like the Virgin Mary, like the Black St. Morris, can be protective and can be sheltering, can even be comforting for a, for a penitent or for an average Christian. Of course, I can never know if this is true, right? It's impossible to go backwards and to find a pilgrim and to figure out, like, is this how they feel? Mm-hmm. But this, this seems to me to carry a certain kind of emotional logic that might be satisfying and might explain why, despite the virulence against blackness in the European Middle Ages, especially from the 13th century onwards, despite all that, from time to time, you see a kind of fascination um, with what might happen with blackness when it's conjoined to sacredness. At the end of chapter four, you've, you've reached the point in your argument where you've discussed um, what you call kind of the four modes of medieval race making in religious, colonial, cartographic, and epidermal race. And the last three chapters of your book are case studies. And yes. the first one that you jump into is the case of the Vinland sagas. Can you talk about what those sagas give to us in terms of race making? What we're getting there in a medieval story about landing in Vinland and and how you compared that to the discoveries at Lansa Meadows, the archaeological uh, finds in in Newfoundland. Yes, um, the Vinland sagas are fascinating because they touch upon a historical period um, where there was climate change, and this is the period we call the medieval warm period or the little climatic optimum. Uh, climate change wasn't, you know even everywhere. In the Mediterranean, it was hardly felt. But in the North Atlantic, during the summer months, it made it possible for people to sail from Greenland and Iceland to North America, right across the Atlantic Ocean, only during the summer months. So uh, from in 1960 and from, the, from 1960 onwards, um, a particular settlement was discovered at Lawns or Meadows in Newfoundland in Nova Scotia. Um, apparently, Icelanders, Greenlanders had landed there, created a complex of houses, and um, they had cut down trees, they had done 
uh, smelting. They had thrown away their trash. They had socialized. <laughs> um, they even they had even done knitting. Uh, there was a knitting needle for single needle knitting found in. It could have been something that could have been a child's toy. So other than that, the, the archaeological record is silent. It can't tell us uh, why, who these people were, why they were there, what they thought of the continent, and wh- whether they encountered Native Americans, and what happened. So for that, we have to turn to these two sagas, which we call the Vinland sagas. They call, it's called Vin- Vinland is Wineland, because the sagas tell us, two sagas, the Greenlander saga and uh, Eric the Red saga, tell us that by sheer accident, by chance, and then later by deliberate purposive design, uh, expeditions came from Greenland, containing mostly Greenlanders, but a few Icelanders, to um, a continent, which they may or may not have recognized as a separate continent, to a place where everything was abundant. It was like an Eden. There were tall, luscious, lush trees. If you've ever been to Iceland, you'll know that the trees are small and scrubby. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so this is treasure. Timber is treasure at this time because you need timber for ships and for housing. There were wild grapes growing on vines. There, were, there was even something that was recognized as wild wheat that you could make into bread. Salmon and fish were fat in the rivers and you know, fish were left in trenches at low tide. So it was just an incredible place. It was, it was a land of abundance and plenty. Unfortunately, there were local inhabitants there already that the sagas call Skrelinga, you know, uh, which everybody agrees is a pejorative name for mm. the indigenous peoples. So basically, the Vinland sagas tell us stories of contact. They tell, of, tell us of trade. In the two episodes of trade described in the sagas, the natives are roundly cheated by the Greenlanders who are triumphant and gleeful about how they cheat the natives and bilk them of precious resources that would be very, very valuable in the international markets mm-hmm. um, to which the Greenlanders and Icelanders had access. Right? They also tell of uh, violence and conflict with the Native Americans and the decision to leave because of a recognition that they were just too populous, too many for the Greenlanders, for the settlers. So this is a very interesting form of settler colonization, as it were, colonial settlement, mm-hmm. pre-Columbus. 400 years before Columbus, they were already, already bilking Native Americans, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So an interesting thing about the sagas is that uh, scientists today have discovered that Icelanders and uh, Native Americans share a gene element that they call the C1E gene element, not shared by any other races across the planet. Um, The sagas tell us that two boys were kidnapped, two Native American boys were kidnapped and brought back to the North Atlantic, to Iceland. Uh, They were taught language, which means they were taught Old Norse, and they were Christianized. And then nothing more. They tell stories about the, you know, they become rapporteurs. They tell stories about what their homelands are like and what the peoples there are like, and so on. Then we don't hear about them anymore. They kind of disappear because the sagas are not interested in them whatsoever. Mm. So in fact, there is an interesting kernel, historical, apparently an interesting historical kernel in the sagas, in the form of these two children, right? And that appears to be vindicated by the DNA record that these scientists find, that these scientists discover. 
The scientists are hesitant, of course, to speculate about why Icelanders and Native Americans share DNA. But, you know, those of us who are interested in possible explanations can now see that saga literature has a, a, has a way of narrating the past that you cannot find in the archaeological record, but that may find traces in even the DNA record. I mean, mm-hmm. chapter five is, is, is sort of complex. It's got lots of different parts to it. It talks about technology and, and metallurgy and weapons in the Iron Age versus Stone Age weapons. And it talks about the different kinds of Native American groups that were occupying North America at the time. It talks about encounters, a possible, including, including a possible encounter between two women, one of whom is a Greenlander, as a Gudrith Tarubjörnadoktir, Mm-hmm. as well as a woman who may possibly have been a Native American woman, you know, and, and uh, it talks about lots of other things, including food and animals and race, as well as religion, you know, how Native Americans were identified and pictured and understood by the, the colonists, the settlers. And, and the last two chapters of the book, the, the next two case studies, are just as complex. Uh, chapter 6 explores uh, writing about the Mongol Empire in Europe from... Uh, John of Plano to William of Rubruck to Marco Polo and Ristocella de Pisa, and kind of a, a trajectory over time in European writing about the Mongol Empire from fear and suspicion to celebrating the achievements of the Mongol Empire and what you call a kind of racial sublime. Such a fascinating chapter. And then in chapter seven, uh, where you really explore Romani diaspora and discuss the kinds of libel and enslavement and expulsion that Romani communities suffered uh, in Europe at one point in relation to Jewish diaspora. Really fascinating, detailed, helpful to me, and I think to anyone who reads the book, uh, helpful history. So in wrapping up our conversation, talk a little bit about who you hope will read the book. Um, Well, I want the widest possible audience. One of the responses to my first book, Empire of Magic, was that it was written in this very dense language. Some of it was highly theoretical. So and difficult to understand. For this book and for all future books, I'm, I'm trying to address the widest possible audience. Uh, in terms of invention of race, I don't just want medievalists and race scholars, race study scholars to read it, but um, anyone who's interested in the long history of race. Mm-hmm. And, and the hope is that the discussion of race won't stay mired in skin color and DNA and biology as a ground of reference. The hope is that people will be able to see that race making is an incredibly flexible and adaptable mechanism that recurs, you know, including people who would like to have a pre-racial past in the hope that there may be some kind of post-racial future. Uh, I'd like people to see and to understand the sheer variety, the sheer adaptability of race making mechanisms across time, and then to see how renewal takes place and innovation takes place in different historical eras. Well, Jerry, thanks again so much for the time today, for joining us on New Books and Intellectual History to talk about the invention of race in the European Middle Ages. A great pleasure. Thank you, Carl. Uh, And thanks, everyone, for listening to New Books and Intellectual History, a channel on the New Books Network. 